Hello, and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and today I am joined by a wonderful group of 10 actors who are going to take us through an exploration of Act One of Shakespeare's King Henry IV, Part One. So I would love for us to go around, say your name, and because this is COVID, where are you spending COVID? And what what character you're playing? And what is your history um, personal relationship to this play, if you have one. Kelly, why don't we start with you? Hi, I'm Kelly Strandamo. I am quarantined here for the long haul in Brooklyn, New York, up the street from my good friend Sam Gilroy. Um, I will be playing Worcester and later Peto, um, or Peto, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. And my relationship to this play is this is the first time I will be participating in a cast of any kind. I have seen the Harriet Walter version um, at St. Anne's Warehouse. I have seen a combined version of Henry IV, one and two at Smith Street Stage, which starred our Lambda <laughs> classmate, Jane May. And I've seen The Hollow Crown, but this is the first time I've seen, or it's the first time I will be um, in it. So thanks, Ariana. Wonderful, excellent. Uh, Sam. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Sam Gilroy. Um, for this production, I'll be reading Hal. Uh, I too have been quarantining. I mean, a bit of a spoilers, but uh, I too am in Brooklyn. Uh, but we actually moved apartments in the middle of all of this, which was a, a huge psychic weight lifted because we were in a one bedroom <laughs> apartment before this and that was too tight. Um, my relationship with this play is actually kind of weird. I had never read it until um, this project came about. Uh, I saw it once at the National with Michael Gambaugh playing Falstaff, uh, which left like a huge impression on me. Um, but I have never been involved in a production of it. Uh, like I said, I'd never read it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a weird person and I sort of keep certain plays uh, kind of like fresh and new. And it's like one of the Shakespeare plays that I actually kind of actively have not gone into for that reason, because uh, I, I wanted to explore it uh, in this kind of setting uh, rather than just sort of reading it to myself, which sometimes can be kind of dry. So. Lovely, excellent. Koi. Hey. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I had to write down what I was supposed to say. Um, my name, my, uh, Nicholas Coy Santillo. Uh, I'm in Toronto, so I'm north of the border. A lot of people here. I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, I'm playing a, a, a bunch of different people uh, today. I think uh, Francis Gadshill Glendower, first messenger, because I'm the best messenger, uh, Osler, <laughs> Sir Michael, and Vintner. Um, I'm really excited. I, I'm just really happy that tabling is coming back. That's my big thing. Um, uh, that's, yeah, I have a, obviously a, a relationship with tabling. And with the play, um, I don't know if we did this in the first alpha draft of tabling. Um, I've definitely worked on the Prince Hal monologue um, a number of times. I don't know if I've ever used it for an audition uh, <laughs> and watched The Hollow Crown. But no, I've never, I've never got to, to do a full production of it. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, Brittany. Hello, I am Brittany Chandler. I am quarantining, vacationing, whatever we want to call it, uh, in New Orleans. 
Um, what else? Oh, I am playing Hostess, which that's Mistress Quickly or whomever. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lady Percy, Blunt, and Second Carrier. Um, and my relationship with the play, yeah, I've, I've never had to read it for school or anything. So I haven't had much of like a, a literary, um, you know, reading relationship with it. And uh, I've seen the same production that, that Kelly referenced um, that Jane was in, the, but that's a combined version. So yeah, pretty fresh to it. Uh, looking forward to exploring it. Wonderful. Mitchell. Hi, um, I'm Mitchell Kawash. I'm coming to you from Queens, New York. Uh, and I am also playing a bunch of different roles. I'm playing uh, Archbishop, Douglas, First Traveler, uh, Lancaster, Mortimer, and the Sheriff. Um, I, uh, I actually auditioned for drama school with one of the Prince Hal uh, monologues, uh, the one in Act 3, so... Uh, this play has been a part of my life for a long time and I've like worked on scenes from it and speeches, but I've, I've never actually gotten to a full um, production. So I'm very excited about this. And I, I saw um, an awesome production um, uh, at the Globe several years ago where Roger Allum uh, really, really loved. They did um, part one and part two, like one of them in the afternoon, one of them in the evening. Was that with, um, oh gosh, what's his name? J Jamie Parker as Prince yeah, yeah. Hal? Oh, yeah. yeah he's he was great he was very cool <laughs> um wonderful genevieve hi everyone i'm genevieve simone um i am in queens i'm in ridgewood and uh oh gosh i'm reading for hotspur which is very exciting i've i've my relationship with this play is um sort of somewhat more recent in terms of like Shakespeare stuff but um it's fun to it's it's always fun to be this person I've never gotten to read this character I've just gotten to listen to a lot of other people do it so I'm kind of excited <laughs> uh, but I've also never been in a, a full production of it I've just done a lot of like groups of actors reading Shakespeare together or monologue work so I'm excited to hear it and especially hear it with so many people whose um work I'm not as familiar with it's really exciting wonderful Lynn. Hi, I'm Lynn Goodwin, and I'm in Santa Fe quarantining during this lovely COVID time. I'm doing some contact tracing as well. And um, my relationship, I'm playing, oh, I am reading um, King Henry IV. And um, my relationship with the play, I'll just leave it at it's mostly fresh. And I'm fascinated with the family dynamics in this play. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Andrew. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Andrew. I'm first going to ask whether you can hear me or whether I'm extremely loud. Or, uh, <laughs> I, can, I think I can adjust up or down. Um, so just let me know. I'm good. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> so uh, I'm Andrew. I am uh, quarantining in the... Uh, rural wilds of New Hampshire. Um, although when this all started, I was actually in Brussels uh, and then in Wales and I had to come fleeing home oh. just before the travel bans went into effect. Uh, at this point, I've totally forgotten that that was where I was when this all started. 
So let's see. I am playing uh, Westmoreland, Vernon, Second Traveler, Chamberlain, <laughs> and Bardolf. I, uh, I, I, gosh, I guess I've read this, been in readings of this play a few times. Uh, in fact, I know I have because a couple of years ago I was in a uh, all the histories reading where we did all all of them in a day. And, uh, I remember being there at seven a.m., so I must have done this one. That was the first time. <laughs> oh, oh. Gosh, anyway, so I know I've been in it. Couldn't tell you who I played. Um, I uh, I produced it a few years ago, also, and um, so I'm excited to kind of dig into it over the course of a, of a few readings here or a few uh, days. And I'm so pleased to meet you all and uh, to have some fun with you. Wonderful. Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. Nice to see you all. Oh, wait, but I won't be seeing the podcast listeners. Well, nice <laughs> to know you're there if you're there. Um, <laughs> I'm playing Northumberland. Um, I have never seen this play, and I have never read this play. I'm a bad actor, but I'm very <laughs> to hear it. And I've actually was working on a radio version of Jack Smith's version of Hamlet. So I've been in like Shakespeare radio land, and I'm really excited by focusing on hearing the text so i'm really looking forward to that with you all wonderful d yo (laughs) (laughs) hello everybody i'm d davis and i am quarantining here following shoulder surgery three weeks ago (laughs) in santa fe new mexico um i am reading falstaff and my relationship to this play goes back a very long time when I was Mistress Page in The Merry Wives of Windsor and oh, immediately wow. fell in love with Falstaff. I just, and <laughs> I just, you know, he's just, he's just so rich and round and wonderful <laughs> to me in a lot of different ways, <laughs> truly. And he's a wonderful Commedia dell'arte character. So I'm able to glean a lot of information from from that. And I just I just adore him. He's just so much fun and a total unique creation of Shakespeare, oddly enough. Wonderful. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, Harold Bloom like wrote a billion page book about how good Falstaff was. I mean, yeah. He's, yeah. It's like Hamlet and Falstaff, the two pillars of artistic creation <laughs> um, and they are and they are and, and one they is are more rotund than the other yeah or at least it's commented on who knows maybe they both are i don't know yeah. but um yeah that yeah. is wonderful um so i'm i'm ariana i'm have been quarantining since may up in uh rural northern california um it's really beautiful here there's redwoods and an ocean not too far away. So it's very nice. Um, I have a very long history myself with this play. This was the first ever play that I was in. Um, And the first Shakespeare, the first time I acted. And I was playing Prince Hal when I was 13. Um, And it was a really, it was kind of a trial by fire experience, but one that 
stuck with me and it's made me really love this play. Um, and then I played Prince Hal again when I was 17 and again when I was 23. And then last, um, last summer, I directed a full scale, very large production in Santa Fe. And it was such a joy to direct this show that I am so very fond of um, and really sort of realize how many of my perceptions about the play have changed from over 15 years ago when I first encountered it almost, Oh my God, almost like 20 years ago. So I'm always excited to, um, I find something new every time. So I'm really excited to um, delve into this with all of you. So should we start act one, scene one? If you want to know what happens immediately before this play, I suggest you check out um, the play that will be, released immediately before this, which will be Richard II, which will give you all the information that you could possibly want. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so Lynn, why don't you start us off with a bang and a lot of civil blood with our first speech. So shaken as we are, so one with care. Find we a time for frighted peace to pant and breathe, short-winded accents of new broils to be commenced in strands afar, remote. No more the thirsty entrance of the soil shall dub her lips with her own children's blood. No more shall trenching war channel her fields, nor bruise her flowerets with the armed hooves of hostile paces. Those opposed eyes, which like the meteors of a troubled heaven, all of one nature, of one substance bred, did lately meet in the intestine shock and furious close of civil butchery, shall now in mutual well-beseeming ranks march all one way and be no more opposed against acquaintance, kindred and allies. The edge of war like an ill-sheathed knife no more shall cut his master. Therefore, friends, as far as to the sepulchre of Christ, whose soldier now under whose blessed cross we are impressed and engaged to fight, forthwith a power of English shall we level, whose arms were molded in their mother's wombs to chase these pagans in those holy fields over whose acres walk those blessed feet, which 1400 years ago were nailed for our advantage on the bitter cross. But this, our purpose, now is 12 month old and bootless tis to tell you we will go. Therefore, meet we now. And let me hear of you, my gentle cousin Westmoreland, what yesternight our council did decree in forwarding this dear expediency. Wonderful. I'm going to just pause here for a second. I always am curious about what the first line or the first um, bit of speech tells us about the kind of world that these people are inhabiting. So what, what do we sort of get from this speech? Like, what does this world consist of at this time? 
Misery, among other things. <laughs> Misery, yeah. Wonderful. Misery, yeah. Just Absolutely. Dripping with internal strife. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much a, a rouse us all to like, let's all hate one thing in unison. <laughs> yes, we absolutely. can't hate each other anymore. Let's go hate those pagans. Yes, <laughs> indeed. What, what pops out to me is just how um, bodily it is. All of like the, like, what is the, the intestine shock? It's yeah. not, it's not intestinal. It's the intestine shock. And there's all yeah. of these, you know, really, um, connecting uh, uh, England, the physical country with a body itself, uh, which I know probably from the previous play is an important sort of concept to attach <laughs> together. Yeah, I'm absolutely. Struck, I'm struck at how much foot imagery there is. And I guess maybe that's also because I'm thinking of like boots on the ground being such a phrase that we hear so often, uh, too often these days, but I mean, you're getting just in, in, you know, a couple lines here, you have walked feet, bootless, you know, all of these sort of images um, from different places that are always going back to that. So I just find that that's really interesting. I'd never noticed that before. Wonderful, um, yeah. The, the other thing that I noticed um, in terms of setting the scene, uh, the Crusades. Um, you know, get mentioned right up at the top and this idea that there are, where, what is it, heathens? What, what are the words that they use to describe? Pagans. Pagans, <laughs> pagans, pagans, thank you, yeah. So the, the pagans get mentioned and, and so this idea too of um, the, uh, the, the, what's unholiness of civil war versus this actually godly fight that uh, the men of England could be on. And so that dichotomy uh, is up there at the very beginning. Yeah, it's a Absolutely. very clever, clever speech because he's not he's not comfortable. So he needs to have a united something for us to all hate. That's not whether or not he should be king. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, is that a proven political a, strategy? That's yeah. the question. Is that a? Is that? A, I guess it is. No, it's true. No, it is. It's totally totally he, a strategy. It's a great question, Coy, and, and there's something in, in part two that it always really haunts me is that when Henry is on his deathbed, he says to his son, you know, who will be the great conqueror, Henry, Henry V, he says, don't do what I did. Like, go have a foreign quarrel, please. <laughs> yeah, I and we see the beginning of uh we see the beginning of that at the beginning of henry v it's like okay what's my justification for invading france you know so i think all of this the 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 civil war versus foreign war who is the enemy it's really dangerous to the realm when it's within um is really like a reinforcement of 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 the previous history plays as well yeah. I think so much of that comes out in the text here with the um, the imagery of the land as being the mother and the, and the the her children's blood, you know, soaking in through her lips and the, you know, in their mother's wombs to ch you know to chase the pagan. The, all that is it's like all the body imagery connects everybody together, even all the way to Christ, you know, with the feet the feet of Christ. But but it's it's just this this kind of connection of humanity in, and in this 
it's true on line 11, he says, all of one nature. We are all one and all of this is connected. We are all connected to everything. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a really interesting point, Lynn. Thank you. Yeah. And I and 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 again, it's like the blessed feet. There's this wonderful antithesis that these blessed feet, what was done to them, they were nailed to something. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's not they 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 walked and then were nailed. There's this really really harsh, violent um, imagery. And I just want us to keep in mind this speech for when we get to the very end of the play, because the ending speech that Henry has is basically this speech but much shorter like no more civil war and we're like oh boy we've come full circle yeah. <laughs> he started off wanting to end civil war and he ends having quashed you know one and is waiting for the other Mitchell, did you have something well I was, yeah, yeah I'm just on that I, I also think you can already feel um like this tension in his confidence level that this is going to happen too, right? He's saying, we're, we're going to be done with civil war. We're going to go do this, but you can also feel that he already is tired. Right. <laughs> um, and it, by the end of it, he's like, well, okay, but I don't need, what's the actual line, but this, our purpose now is 12 month old and bootless yeah. tis to tell you, we will go. Therefore we meet not now. Right. Like it's already like some sense that this really might not happen. <laughs> And there's weariness. Yeah, like yeah. We're, we're, we're shaken with care, too much care. And of course, I, I, I hear a resonance to the Richard II with the, the hole in the deposition scene where Richard says to Henry, your cares set up, do not pluck my cares down. And I feel like there's this theme in so many of the history plays about just the care weighing you down with the crown and None of these kings can ever sleep. They all have these wonderful speeches about how they're very envious of their subjects' ability to sleep. Um, but and anyways, think. yeah, um, <laughs> Ari. Think. Yeah. Yes, Sam. I have a question because I know you're doing King John currently, right now, at the same time, like with us. I, I, I think a little bit like sort of this crusade thing too. That there seems to be, especially with with King John, sort of the specter that Richard the Lionheart kind of like throws over that entire play and this glorious idea of like the holy English crusader and this sort of lost glory that you go from Lionheart to John. And there seems to be like an echo of that at the beginning of this play, having gone from, again, we could be out here doing something worthwhile, but we've fallen because of the thing that happened in the previous play, Richard too. And so mm -hmm. I just sort of, picked up this echo there of this lost English, um, uh, halcyon is the wrong word, but this, um, this loss of national pride. Um, and like on the beginning of a global stage too, which is really interesting, right? Like the idea of the nation state isn't existent yet, but even here, you know, they're talking about a war in the Middle East and that sort of, again, you know, the Lionheart's glory was all there and Eleanor of Aquitaine as well yeah absolutely and they the to the to the extent that as I was doing some historical reading Richard the Lionheart had spent very little of his reign actually in the kingdom he was the king of he so didn't speak old he yeah, didn't he speak old English. English he only spoke French he only yeah. spoke French <laughs> 
So there is definitely a, uh, which will be a theme in this play of um, how connected are you to the people that you're ruling, which I think is a debate that is going to get very um, heated up in, in this play. I wish so this there was some like, modern, King. I wish there were some like modern thing I could think of that would be, you know, resonant in that moment. Hmm. Mm, I wonder, I wonder. Just throwing that out there. Just I was really crazy. enjoying talking about the King John, the two sides claiming victory at the same time, like on November 4th when we recorded <laughs> the first day. It was, it was pretty rad. Or 10. But, um, that's <laughs> fascinating, actually. Like the dual king thing is actually really fascinating to be doing that play um, with everything else. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, Andrew, why don't you tell us about give us your response to uh to king henry's inquiry <laughs> my liege this haste was hot in question and many limits of the charge set down but yesternight when all athwart there came a post from wales loaden with heavy news whose worst was that the noble mortimer leading the men of herefordshire to fight against the irregular and wild glendower was by the rude hands of that Welshman taken, a thousand of his people butchered, upon whose dead corpse there was much misuse. Such beastly, shameless transformation by those Welsh women done as may not be without much shame retold or spoken of. It seems then that the tidings of this broil break off our business for the Holy Land. This matched with other did, my gracious lord, far more uneven and unwelcome news came from the north, and thus it did import. On Holyrood Day, the gallant Hotspur there, young Harry Percy, and brave Archibald, that ever valiant and approved Scot, at Holmden met, where they did spend a sad and bloody hour, as by discharge of their artillery, in shape of likelihood, the news was told. For he that brought them in the very heat and pride of their contention did take horse, uncertain of the issue any way. Here is a dear, a true industrious friend, Sir Walter Blunt, new lighted from his horse, stained with the variation of each soil betwixt that Holmden and this seat of ours. And he hath brought us smooth and welcome news. The Earl of Douglas is discomfited. 10,000 bold Scots, Two and twenty knights, balked in their own blood, did Sir Walter see on Holmden's plains. Of prisoners, Hotspur took Mordic, Earl of Fife and eldest son to beaten Douglas, and the Earl of Athol, of Murray, Angus, and Menteith. And is this not an honorable spoil, a gallant prize, huh, cousin? Is it not? In faith, it is a conquest for a prince to boast of. I'm going to just pause here very briefly. Um, I just want to point out at the beginning, I'm always fascinated by the characters in Shakespeare that are othered by other characters. Um, so, for example, I think Shylock is like a very classic example of the outsider, the person that's, that's sort of different. Um, and in these history plays, it's usually someone who's coming from somewhere different. So I'm really interested as we go along to just track the ways in which um, the English talk about the Welsh and the ways in which the English talk about the Scots, because there's a lot of really interesting, like Glendower is such a huge presence in this play, 
but he only appears in one scene, but he's talked about almost more than anyone else. Um, and the, the words used to describe him wild, irregular, you know, brave, damned, all of these different, they, they really sort of, and the way that he speaks as well is much more lyrical, I think, in some ways than a lot of the other characters. And then, of course, there's Douglas, who's one of my favorite characters, who's this Scots, this Scotsman who's like this amazing warrior who you really need to cast someone who knows how to fight <laughs> for this role because they D Douglas gets four sword fights um, within the space of about five minutes, um, which is really challenging is the, the actor that I cast in the role last summer found out. I mean, he had a lot of fight rehearsals. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Um, but just for us to sort of track the way in which people who aren't English are talked about um, was very interesting to me. I also just love that that image that that Blunt has come and that his his cloak has these different patterns of dirt from all the different corners of the realm as he's gone from one to the other. I think that's a wonderful little sort of internal stage direction about how these people are dressed. I love this idea that everyone's kind of covered in dirt, um, which is, you know, makes, makes sense. <laughs> um, so did, just from you a know, plot, oh, sorry, oh, yeah, just from a plot point, just from a plot point, like the first response to the King is like, well, here's some information that means you can't go have this crusade <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. It immediately is cut off. Absolutely. Yeah, the king's response is just two lines, which feels like uh, someone was saying before, like he already knows in that whole long speech, it's not going to go. Like, well, okay, it seems like we're not going to go. <laughs> we probably won't get really to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, um, from like a completely lowbrow standpoint, a lot of proper nouns are thrown at you very quickly too in those like, there's a major plot download that like, exposition city there for like two seconds to set up everything that needs to happen um next absolutely and that's and that's what i was going to say is that up to this point we've had nothing but information one piece after another after another tons and tons of information that the audience has to assimilate it's a lot it's, it's like in, really it's like in the dramas <laughs> it's like the dramas before netflix where it was like previously on the west wing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's, absolutely i think it's Ariana, definitely part of a mini series <laughs> yeah. i i, I mean, do think what you were saying though about you know keeping in mind what how the english are spoken of versus how outsiders are spoken of you know shakespeare knew his audience and i remember when we were at lambda doing the henry sixes uh john bashford said that you know, the whole point of the Henry Sixes, in a way, is to prove that it's okay that Elizabeth is on the throne. You know, you, you, yeah. you have to side with the current monarch. And so yeah. the people that are, you know, people always are like, oh, you know, artists sell out these days. But I mean, Shakespeare is one of the first people <laughs> that said, play to, the, play to the crowd. You know, like, yeah. these are the people, I'm a part of the King's Men. You know, we're gonna write this. This is for the glory of England. And I know where my checks are coming from, so better make sure that this is all happening. And, you know, to the point where, like, Henry V became, like, a propaganda film, essentially, at one point. So, um, or a play. So I think that it's, 
I always love it when people get really high and mighty about Shakespeare, but then you look at these things and think, oh, oh no, he he was a businessman. He knew where his <laughs> he knew where his bread was buttered. You know, yes. Well, it's, it's, it, 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 you can actually sort of scan this in in a bunch of Shakespeare plays too, but it's that info dump and that like proper noun vomit happens in a lot of beginning Shakespeare plays. And there's always this really fascinating thing that I find with modern audiences where you open up a playbill and they have a list of who every character is and who, how everybody is connected to one another. And you always see modern, you know, people flipping through trying to figure out who everybody's talking about. And I'm always thinking about in the original production, the groundlings would not have scanned everybody's name. And there would not have been the time to really absorb who every of all of these things are. And I, I often think a lot about how when these characters that have been mentioned get brought back later in the play, how they're re-signaled to the audience. And I just like imagine the groundlings being like, wait a minute, who is that one? Oh, that, that's the crazy <laughs> Scotsman. And the bubble, and that's the way that it would have been. And and so it's, I always find it really, these first couple of pages really interesting because I think you just let it wash over you. You know, mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of uh, ideas sometimes where you really have to hammer home who these people are. And, and, and yeah, and I think, I think that's too much sometimes. I think you just let it wash over you. And like, we yeah. don't do that with modern movies either. It's like, I spend half the time I'm watching TV, not knowing characters' names and being like, no, it's the brother of the guy who was sleeping with her. And I was like, oh, of course. And it's so weird to me that for Shakespeare, we always do that thing of being like, oh God, I gotta like reread it before I go back and see it. Or like, I gotta be flipping through this. Who's on first, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I really do think it's really fascinating how Shakespeare does handle that as a dramatist at the beginning. Um, where the language around these characters are all really exciting and they're describing exciting events, but at the same time, it is absolutely an info dump. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Like it feels like it's <laughs> teaching you how to listen, like, okay, like calm down, stop talking to each other. This is happening now. But yeah. it's also interesting that you bring that up, the idea of like the insecurity, because I often felt so much insecurity about the histories. And I still do because I feel like I'm not British enough to really understand the histories. You know, I'm like... <laughs> I'm not yeah. British at all. And I don't know anything about what's an archduke versus an earl. And and it's just like not in my lived experience. But I also think it's it's reassuring to remember the groundlings and be like, we're all just trying to figure out, you know, how the play sounds and like any play, like how we're supposed to listen to it. As long Absolutely. as you understand yeah, yeah. who hates who and who loves who, which is what <laughs> like the actors, that's the actor's jobs. It's not even right. really in a weird way, the words. Right. I mean, back in the day, oh, I listened to a Shakespeare play. I don't see it. But even now it's, that is the, the relationships are in our domain and that's what we make clear. And, and right. so I do, again, I do, when you get like Glendower and all of these names thrown at you and you're like, all right, all right, wait a minute. Like I'm terrified, but I just need to. As Genevieve said, like, <laughs> I'm terrified. You know, let it I think it, it's helpful to to frame them. And the reason that I love the histories is because everyone's related. If you frame it less as like uh, dynastic encounters and more like this is truly family drama, which what could be more sort of connected to, you know, the roots of American uh, theater than than family drama. And, you know, for example, the two people that are speaking um Westmoreland is King Henry's uh, the fourth's brother-in-law um, by his half sister. You know, so these guys are related, and um, and just 
if you're going for the full mini series, Westmoreland's name is Ralph Neville. Richard III married Anne Neville. So they're all like all these people. We're going to see their descendants in in other in other plays. Um, Andrew, I'm curious what are what are your impressions of Westmoreland so far? The I think it's an interesting foil to the as somebody mentioned already this great um, kind of rabble rousing speech at the top and then well we can't really do that because <laughs> there's this other thing happening it's, it's a bit of a downer really but yeah he seems to have his head on straight in that in that sense of uh so i don't know i'm at this point feeling that sense of um sometimes you've got a king uh who kind of thinks he knows what he's doing and uh you kind of have to manage that I don't know why this seems so familiar to me right now, but, um, <laughs> but uh, sometimes you have to manage the king who's sitting on the throne and making pronouncements, but doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no relevance whatsoever. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it's relevant at all to anything contemporary, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. So now we get to the real emotional punch, um, I, I, I sort of titled this little section, um, good news, bad son. Um, <laughs> I like giving the, the, the little sort of French scenes, little names that sort of um, helps me remember exactly what, what has happened. So the, yeah, the first one was uh, civil war to foreign war. And here we have good news, bad son. Um, so let, uh, let's go from the, in faith, it is a conquest. In faith, it is a conquest for a prince to boast of. Yay. There thou makest me sad and makest me sin and envy that my Lord Northumberland should be the father to so blessed a son, a son who is the theme of honor's tongue amongst a grove, the very straightest plant who is sweet fortune's minion and her pride. Whilst I, by looking on the praise of him, see riot and dishonor stain the brow of my young Harry. Oh, that it could be proved that some night-tripping fairy had exchanged in cradle clothes our children where they lay and called <laughs> mine Percy his Plantagenet. Then would I have his Harry and he mine. But let him from my thoughts. What think you cause of this young Percy's pride? The prisoners which he in this adventure hath surprised to his own use he keeps and sends me word, I shall have none but Mordech of Mordech Earl of Fife. This is his uncle's teaching. This is Worcester malevolent to you in all aspects, which make him prune himself and bristle up the crest of youth against your dignity. But I have sent for him to answer this. And for this cause, a while we must neglect our holy purpose to Jerusalem. Cousin, on Wednesday next, our council we will hold at Windsor. So inform the lords. But come yourself with speed to us again, for more is to be said and to be done than out of anger can be uttered. I will, my liege. So, wow, what a turn there from this sort of very much about information and 
politics and to me it like gives context to this whole scene that the speech about oh i wish i had a different harry it's really confusing when three of the four uh biggest characters all have the same name so <laughs> so we give them all all different names we've got king henry prince hal and hotspur or harry um but wow what a i mean what a way to start off this father-son relationship. Um, you know, I think King John is very much a play about mothers and sons. There's three mothers um, that have very intense relationships with their sons. And um, then there, this is a play about fathers and sons and the, the double, sometimes the not just family father, but the father figure i think there's there's so much doubling in this play i think hal and hotspur are very much doubles um and falstaff and king henry are very much the two fathers figures of of prince hal so it's it's wonderful that we get that sort of uh, personal moment i think with i think it brings the whole thing back to earth with this little this little thought of the king um but then he gets all angry, right? Then at the end, he's like, I can't believe he's only going to give me one prisoner. Um, and, and historically, this is how a lot of these, they got a lot of money off of ransoning, ransoming the uh, prisoners that had a, a name. Um, so by not giving prisoners, they're not uh, really supplying money. And this was a constant battle between the, per the Northern Percy family that constantly was needing more money to help with their... Um, trying to keep the Scottish out of the northern border and the crown, which was really responsible for giving them the money to fortify their defenses. So this is going to be definitely a root problem that is, um, it was, it's funny in the, the Shakespeare's English Kings chapter that I think I sent you guys, um, there's a whole thing that said historically there's a theory that Henry's money troubles were what aged him prematurely because he was just so stressed out about the crown's finances because they were in such dire sort of dire straits throughout the beginning of his realm accompanied by sort of eight years of civil war um like 73 so, million dollars in debt or something like that yeah, something like that <laughs> um, <laughs> all right can i can i ask you about like so so that was th this holding of prisoners was something that was happening somewhat routinely is what you're saying that's oh, really only only one of noble yeah, a noble name. In fact, it's how warfare was pretty much conducted. The footmen, the levy soldiers didn't matter for kind of anything and were just chum. The heavily armored knights, the whole goal was not to kill them, but was to capture them so you could keep on funding your war. And that was like a pan-European practice. So, so that does sort of, I mean, this is something we're going to get to in a couple of scenes, but that lends some credence to the idea that Henry is to some degree overreacting, that it's not just the actual act of Hotspur keeping these prisoners, right? Like that it's maybe that it's Mortimer, that it's that he's upset about how, like that there's some, that when Hotspur says, wait, Henry's overreacting to this, like that Hotspur is to some degree right. Yeah, I think so. Well, and, and there's a lot about, you know, who owes who money and the fact that um, by keeping the prisoners, this would give the Percy family the money that they need in order to defend the kingdom as well. So there's, there's a lot of um, interesting, complex political and economic right. He's suspicious issues already going in. in. He's <laughs> yeah. worried about them as a threat 
already. And then I, I yeah. love yeah. this this line of Westmoreland's about pruning himself, about Worcester pruning himself and bristling up. Like it's just you get this wonderful image of like this bird that's like mm-mm. It's like very proud, peacocky kind of bird. Anyway, I just love that. I'm so sorry. Um, I, Genevieve, was that you? Or? Oh, I just was, I was like trying to remember. I know that Shakespeare, I mean, in this play is not exactly what happened in history in terms of the Percys and and the, and the king in terms of like, they got him on the throne and then it's gone unclear when they decided like, no, we don't actually want to support you anymore. But, um, yeah. but I think about that too, about like, what was the shift and that there's already a hint of like, it's the uncle. It's the uncle mm. who's like no good. And like kind of already figuring out like who, in this family and 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 why are we so nervous about them because they put us here but they could take us away and that threat being so heavy absolutely and i think it's the really important thing is that um they were before henry became king definitely the most powerful nobles in the land so they have always um for the last couple generations Generations had held a huge amount of power and influence in terms of politics. And then also they're some of the best soldiers because they're constantly engaged in warfare with the Scots. So they're very battle hardened um, as opposed to, you know, the Southern Lords. I mean, the, you can see where George R. R. Martin just like took this and ran wild. You know, it's basically War of the Roses and Game of Thrones plus a couple dragons, you know, and uh, <laughs> We, other weird things but you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels that the the people guarding the border are the best you want those guys in your army because they're they're very good soldiers which i think is why hotspur is such a good soldier um because he grew up you know from the age of 12 probably in these battles um wonderful yeah sam i just there's something in the text that i noticed um about the description of hotspur uh, amongst a grove, the very straightest plant. And I know that this was like 50, written in 1590 something, right? Uh-huh, yep, um, mid-1590s. And so uh, Shakespeare's writing, I think Richard II, King John, and like a lot of the histories throughout the 1590s, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think King yeah. John and Richard II are written simultaneously, they think. Um, but I, I think the, the idea in Richard II of England as a garden you know, there's this really belabored metaphor in Richard II. And so the idea that hotspurs and amongst a grove, the very straightest plant is like a really powerful image to me, knowing this idea of England as a garden and this idea of the garden. And really right here, having the king like point blank say that out of like everybody in England, this yeah. is the model of what it means to be a good Englishman. It, especially at the top of the play is such like a profound setup for that character, uh, especially within the context of the tetralogy and, and what's clearly going on in Shakespeare's writing at this time. But that garden metaphor stuck has always stuck with me. And so that amongst a grove, the very straightest plant really hit me hard. Absolutely. And in Richard II, you know, Bolingbroke, Henry IV is called the best gardener. He's the good gardener. That's why we need him to come in and prune out all of these weeds and get the caterpillars of the Commonwealth out. You know, so to, to for him to set up Hotspur as his kind of imagined heir is, is, is quite a statement. Uh, Kelly? I, I was just thinking if I was hearing or reading this play for the first time, at the end of the scene, I would, I would think Hotspur's the hero. 
This is Hotspur's journey. Yeah. You know, we're mm -hmm. gonna. This clearly is gonna be a, be a play about how the wrong boy was born king, and how Hotspur is gonna take over. And then we go to something completely different. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, it's yes. the end of the scene. We're like, oh, it should have been Hotspur, and then now we're in a tavern. Yes. So, you know. And let's go to that tavern. Let's switch to prose. <laughs> uh -uh. Which uh, for for anyone listening um so prose is when it's basically when you have a something that isn't verse how's that for a negative definition um <laughs> um and yes so here we have our wonderful falstaff and prince hal somewhere in london now hal what time of day is it lad Thou art so fat-witted with drinking of old sack and unbuttoning thee after supper and sleeping upon benches after noon that thou hast forgotten to demand what truly wish thou wouldst truly know. What a devil hast thou to do with the time of day? Unless hours were cups of sack and minutes tap-ons and the clocks the tongues of bods and dials the signs of leaping houses and the blessed sun himself a fair hot wench in flame-covered taffeta, I see no reason why thou should be, be so superfluous to demand the time of day. Indeed. <laughs> you come near me now, Hal. For we that take purses go by the moon and the seven stars, and not by Phoebus, he that wandering knight so fair. And I prithee, sweet wag, when thou art king, as God save thy grace, majesty I should say, for grace that wilt have none. What? None? And no, by thy troth. Not so much as will serve to be prologue to an egg and butter. Well, how then? Come, roundly, roundly. Marry then, sweet wag. When thou art king, let not us that are squires of the knight's body be called thieves of the day's beauty. Let us be Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon. And let men say, we be men of good government, being governed, as the sea is, by our noble and chaste mistress the moon, under whose countenance we steal. Thou sayest well, and it holds well too, for the fortune of us that are the moon's men doth ebb and flow like the sea, being governed as the sea is by the moon. As for proof now, a purse of gold most resolutely snatched on Monday night, and most dissolutely spent on Tuesday morning, got with the swearing of lay by, and spent with the crying of bring in, now as low in ebb as the foot of the ladder, and by and by in as high a flow as the ridge of the gallows. By the Lord, thou sayest true, lad, and is not my hostess of the tavern a most sweet wench? As the honey of Hybla, my old lad of the castle, and is not a buff jerkin a most sweet robe of durance? How now, how now, mad wag? What, in thy quips and thy quiddities? What a plague have I to do with a buff jerkin? Why, what a pox have I to do with my hostess of the tavern? Thou hast called her to a reckoning many a time and oft. Did I ever call thee to pay thy part? No. 
I'll give thee thy due. Thou hast paid all there. I'm just going to pause here just briefly. I just wanted to, I mean, what a totally different scene. Yeah. It's like we're in a different play all of a sudden. We went in a different world. <laughs> like it's yeah. like we're talking, it's like drinking, eating, thieving, and wenching. The good life. All right. You know, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. I love how much they play with language and meaning. You know, the, the grace thing uh, from Falstaff's first speech within two lines you use three different meanings of the word grace right grace is in title like your grace grace is in elegance and also grace is in the prayer that you say before your food when you do the roundly i always kind of imagine in my head that so roundly technically in this context i think means plainly but it's also like rotundly like a round thing that you are falstaff so there's all these just wonderful little word plays and it, it gives me the sense that these two have known each other forever and that this is what they like to do they like to play with words tennis match word tennis match just as a sidebar while we're waiting for deborah to get back in i just doing digital script reading sucks because i just can't i want to take like a pencil note for the come roundly roundly for like <laughs> roundly being truthful and then the second roundly just making a mark to be like call him roundly yes call him roundly <laughs> Curious about what a buff jerkin was? I oh, yeah. It's a leather jacket formerly worn by soldiers under the corselet sometimes. I was just, yes. what on earth is a buff? So, <laughs> carry <laughs> Thank on. you, Brett. I think it should be the name of your new band, Brittany. Yes. <laughs> buff Brittany jerkin. and the Buff Jerkin. Actually, my favorite band name actually comes from Henry the Fourth, Part Two, which is when Francis at one point says, Go find Sneak's Noise, which I'm like, Sneak's Noise? That is the coolest name for a band. Whoa, I'm going to go hear Sneak. <laughs> Ariana, um, something else occurred to me in this reading, too, that we're dealing with two thieves in the king's eyes. Yeah, you yeah, know, very Hotspur, much. Hotspur is keeping something that the king thinks he belongs to him, and Falstaff is stealing, literally stealing things and making Hal pay for everything. So... <laughs> I, it's just interesting that there is this juxtaposition, there is a through line of sort of thievery that I hadn't really thought of before. That's really cool, too, because because Henry is a thief as well, right? And is very <laughs> aware that he's a thief, right? And sort of potentially, yeah, tends to blame, you know, uh, or, or yeah, the, the Richard is looming over this whole thing, I guess is what I want to say. Absolutely. And that's, well, that's something too, that, you know, Hal wasn't, as we, we sort of had this realization when we were talking through Richard II, that his son didn't grow up believing that he was going to be king. It was only when he turned about 12, that I think that's when he was 12 years old, when his father was crowned. So that also is like, way to swerve your expectations you know well something i thought that was kind of interesting and i don't know as much about the specifics of people and everything but i just watched the most recent season of the crown and just talking about like the legitimacy of a crown and how you maintain that belief and that structure and everything and i think one of the articles you linked mentioned this where it's like yeah the more you shift who's in control then the less faith people have in that control Right. All, it's all about, yeah, it's all it's all justified by God said I was king. And that gets kind of mucky when God changes his mind a lot. Just to, to go back to Richard II for a second. Um, and and I, this this is really because I've I've never done all of Richard II as Richard, but I have done the 
epic aria that he has at the end that also has a painfully twisted clock metaphor in it, which Hal also has in this play, which I think is really interesting, having gotten to that there. But the difference in those two men's conception of a clock is fascinating to yeah. me, where Richards are uh, they're pointing, the fingers are pointing to his eyes, the sound that a clock makes is pangs upon the heart. The, a, a clock is this terrible thing for Richard, whereas the metaphor that Hal uses here, it's the ton of bods, uh, brothels, tap-ons, cups of, of alcohol. That's what time is for this character. And I like, I just have a very vivid imagination of the bard being like, yeah, Shakespeare being like, yeah, look at this is a really easy way. Like I'm gonna do the <laughs> clock metaphor again because what a cool way to like break out these two characters and differences. But it's, it's just really fascinating to me that it's, it's almost the same uh, metaphor broken out in a completely different way. That's can wonderful, Sam. Yes, yes, we can, we got Woo! you. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, let's get back to the text, but I also wanted to say when we get to your herein will I imitate the sun, Richard associates himself with the sun for all of Richard II. So it's it's wonderful that there's this resonance with with Hal as not being the sun, but wanting to imitate it. And that is something that actually um, his father will chastise him for in act three is being too like Richard. Um, I wonderful. <laughs> I just I just think chronologically, Ari, it's really interesting because I think was well, am I am I mistaken? Richard II was written after uh Henry uh, the Fourth. Before. Like probably oh, Richard Richard II, probably King John. There's there's a lot of debate about this, but then probably Henry the Fourth, parts one and two were written after Richard II. Oh, cool. I think okay. You're thinking I was mistaken. Coy, I think you're thinking Henry Sixes were written before. Henry IVs, right? Yes, yeah. they, they definitely were. They're, they're probably some of the, the earliest plays. Um, okay. Isn't Henry VI part two, like the first Henry that he wrote and it was pretty early in his career? <laughs> probably. Yeah. I don't, I'm not enough of a, of a, of a textual scholar um, when it comes to that, seance. but it's something, Ask. yeah. <laughs> um, wonderful, so let's hear about how, um, how much uh, Hal has to use his credit because Falstaff spends a lot of money that doesn't belong to him, which will be a theme throughout this play. So let's go from uh, yay and elsewhere. Yay and elsewhere, so far as my coin would stretch and where it would not, I have used my credit. Yay, and so used it that were it not here apparent that thou art heir apparent. But I prithee sweet wag, Shall there be gallows standing in England when thou art king? And resolution thus fobbed, as it is with the rusty curb of old father antique the law, do not thou, when thou art king, hang a thief. No, thou shalt. Shall I? Oh, rare. By the Lord, I'll be a brave judge. Thou judgest false already. I mean, thou shalt have the hanging of the thieves and so become a rare hangman. Well, Hal, well. And in some sort of jumps with my humor, as well as waiting in the court, I can tell you. For obtaining of suits? Yea, for obtaining of suits, where the hangman hath no lean wardrobe. 
drops of blood. I am as melancholy as a gib cat or a lug bear. Or an old lion or a lover's loot. Yea, or the drone of a Lincolnshire bagpipe. What sayest thou to a hare or the melancholy of uh, Mordich? Thou hast the most unsavory similes, and art indeed the most comparative, rascalious, sweet young prince. But how? I prithee trouble me no more with vanity. I would to God thou and I knew where a commodity of good names were to be bought. An old lord of the council rated me the other day in the street about you, sir. But I marked him not. And yet he talked very wisely, but I regarded him not. And yet he talked wisely, and in the street, too. Thou didst well, for wisdom cries out in the streets, and no man regards it. Oh, thou hast damnable iteration, and art indeed able to corrupt the saint. Thou hast done much harm upon me, Hal. God forgive thee for it. Before I knew thee, Hal, I knew nothing. And now am I, if a man should speak truly, little better than one of the wicked. I must give over this life, and I will give it over by the Lord, and I do not. I am a villain. I'll be damned for never a king's son in Christendom. Where shall we take a purse tomorrow, Jack? Zooms without wealth, lad. I'll make one. I do not call me villain and baffle me. I see a good amendment of life in thee from praying to purse-taking. Why, Hal? Tis my vocation, Hal. Tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation. Vines! <gasps> shall we know if Gad shall have said a match? Or if men were to be saved by merit, what hole in hell were hot enough for him? This is the most omnipotent villain that ever cried, stand to a true man. Good morrow, Ned. Uh, I, I love this, this strange... These strange changes of thought that Falstaff has. I mean, there. I think the first one, when you know, Hal. There, to me, that one's a bit clear because Hal starts talking about the gallows, and Falstaff says, "Ah, oh, isn't the hostess great?" And it's like I don't want to think about hanging right now. Yeah. Is sort of yeah. my interpretation of that. That there's this rapid, but then all of a sudden. He talks about the hangman again, and then all of a sudden he becomes very melancholy, like a castrated cat or a baited bear, you know, <laughs> all these like very strange things. And then and then how like takes it. Oh, aren't you just as sad as like the filthy ditch where everyone dumps their chamber pots? And it's like, where did that come from? I just it's looked just that these, up. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, I just. That's what Hal's saying, right? He just looked that up too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> like, I just came up with that. It just came to me. But it's, it's, I love this, the speech, the Falstaff speech about, I, I knew nothing before I knew you. Like, you've corrupted me, which is just like always such a, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. But through it all to me, that there, the thing that, comes through the text is a sense that these two really love each other 
And I know that sounds a bit cheesy to say, but I, I did see a production many years ago where Hal hated all of the tavern people from the beginning. Like there was absolutely no affection or fondness and the production just did not work at all. Oh, like he no, was a total wrong. Machiavellian, yeah. like using everyone. And it just didn't work because it, it, there were no stakes for the whole show. It was like, he has to, in a certain way, like that's the one thing I think there's, there's so many different interpretations of this relationship, but I think there does need to be some genuine, at least enjoyment of each other's company. Otherwise, like, I think the play doesn't, quite work and and there's something so kind of almost like the language of love in other Shakespeare plays and the way that Falstaff talks about like you've given me everything and you've destroyed me at the same time like there's something akin to the kind of desolation that romantic love uh, wrecks on a lot of Shakespeare's characters to me. Um, yeah, and like <laughs> you never you never get so heated and passionate and metaphorical as with the people that you love or care the most about in Shakespeare. Oh, I don't know. It's also completely. like if your father in life. You, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you get the sense in this and uh, you know, reading something for the first time always clarifies it a little bit. Um, but you do get the sense of this too, though, about how clearly loves all of them deeply and profoundly. Mm -hmm. You can't banter with somebody like that without having a good connection, but there is this sense of utter boredom that Hal has throughout this entire scene. He's so bored. He's so epically bored and you can, you can clock it. Like he, he has fun up at the top of the scene when he's being honored, but his responses get so one line, two lines after that. And there's these really hard turns that he takes two throughout it where he's just like, where are we gonna take a purse? Like, who are we robbing tomorrow? It just comes out of such uh, the blue from Falstaff's line before it. And so I do yeah. think it is really interesting that you're getting a sense of being a, a man who's around the people that he loves in a place that he loves, but he's just sort of bored with it now or mm -hmm. has grown a little bit beyond it now. Um, and there is like an itchiness, I feel like to him at the top of this scene that is undercut oh, like that. a little bit of the love that's going on. Cause some of those turns just um, in reading it for the first time seem a little bit, uh, 90 degrees to me from what yeah. they were doing or where the banter was going before. That. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's a great point. And, and the dynamic completely shifts as we see as points enters. And there is a really interesting little triangle that these three characters have. Um, I always think false staff and points are kind of in this epic battle for Hal's affection. Um, and they, they kind of win points on each other throughout the play. Um, so let's introduce that wonderful new anarchic element to this dynamic. <laughs> um, whenever you are ready, Alex. <laughs> Good morning, sweet Hal. What says Monsieur Remorse? What says Sir John's sack and sugar, Jack? How agrees the devil in thee about thy soul that thou soldest him on Good Friday last for a cup of Madeira and a cold Capone's leg? Sir John stands to his words. The devil shall have his bargain, for he was never yet a breaker of proverbs. He will give the devil his due. Then 
Art thou damned for keeping thy word with the devil? Else he had been damned for causing the devil. But my lads, my lads, tomorrow morning by four o'clock early at Gad's Hill, there are pilgrims going to Canterbury with rich offerings and traders riding to London with fat purses. I have visards for you all. You have horses for yourselves. Gadshill lies tonight in Rochester. I have bespoke supper tomorrow night in East Cheat. We may do it as secure as sleep. If you will go, I will stuff your purses full of crowns. If you will not, tarry at home and be hanged. Hear ye yet word? If I tarry at home and go not, I'll hang you for going. You will, Chops. Well, wilt thou make one? Who? I rob? I a thief? <laughs> not I, by my faith. There's neither honesty, manhood, nor good fellowship in thee, nor thou camest not of blood royal, if thou darest not stand for ten shillings. Well then, once in my days, I'll be a madcap. <laughs> Why, that's well said. Well, come what will, I'll tarry at home. Oh, by the Lord, I'll be a traitor then, when thou art king. I care not. Sir John, I prithee leave the prince and me alone. I will lay him down such reasons for this adventure that he shall go. Well, God give thee the spirit of persuasion and him the ears of profiting, that what thou speakest may move and what he hears may be believed, that the true prince may, for recreation's sake, prove a false thief, for the poor abuses of the time want countenance. Farewell. You shall find me in he's cheap. Farewell, the ladder of spring. Farewell, all hollow in summer. Now, my good, sweet honey lord, ride with us tomorrow. I have a jest to execute that I cannot manage alone. Falstaff, Peto, Bardolph, and Gadgil shall rob those men that we have already waylaid. Yourself and I will not be there. And when they have the booty... If you and I do not rob them, cut this head off from my shoulders. Oh, how shall we part with them in setting forth? Why, we will set forth before or after them and appoint them a place of meeting, wherein it is at our pleasure to fail. <laughs> and then will they adventure upon the exploit themselves, which they shall have no sooner achieved, but will set upon them. Yea, but tis like that they will know us by our horses, by our habits, and by every other appointment to be ourselves. But our horses they shall not see, I'll tie them in the wood. Our wizards we will change after we leave them. And, sirrah, I have cases of buckram for the nonce to emask our noted outward garments. Yea, but I doubt that they will be too hard for us. Well, for two of them... I know them to be as true-bred cowards as ever turned back. And for the third, if he fight longer than he sees reason, I'll forswear arms. The virtue of this jest will be the incomprehensible lies that this same fat rogue will tell us when we meet at supper. How thirty at least he fought with, what wards, what blows, what extremities he endured. And in the reproof of this lives the jest. Well, I'll go with thee. Provide us all things necessary and meet me tomorrow night in East Cheap. 
They're all sup. Farewell. Farewell, my lord. So, Alex, what are your impressions of points so far? <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, I guess I, I, I'm really intrigued by the power dynamic. Like, um, mm. uh, he seems so confidently manipulative or like he has this certain um charm that comes like right off the bat by being comfortable like with kind of mockery and like assuming that that he'll be able to to get his way um absolutely so yeah it's quite an entrance i suppose that sort of like sets the tone (laughs) absolutely i mean it's extraordinary that this guy well it also i mean we didn't talk about this but that that falstaff too they call the crown prince Sira, which like means little sir, right? Or like, which can be both um, very uh, an intimate expression, but it can also be like really dismissive as well. So they're calling like the heir to the crown Sira or mad wag or sweet wag. I love all the sweet honey prince. It's just like, like it's it's kind of like drippingly saccharine. It's 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 really it's quite fun. I also get the, the the idea, especially the way you read it, that like points has like been really carefully planning this jest. Like he's <laughs> like, this is gonna be my ultimate jest. <laughs> like, you know, I I don't know. I just got the impression. Like maybe it's to do with that confidence that kind of comes off the page of just like I got this. <laughs> is. Yeah. Points traditionally, uh, I, I can't remember points from the production that I saw. And again, it's my first time, but is points traditionally cast as more of a contemporary of Hal's, like similar in age? Yeah. Because that that makes sort of Falstaff does seem like the older sort of leader of the band. And yeah. and I the, the, the relationship points does feel to be more of a contemporary of Hal and a little bit more down in the weeds with how, whereas Falstaff <laughs> does seem to be already uh, this larger than life figure for the two of them, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely. And, and you do get a sense, I think later on in the play that uh, among all of the tavern companions that Poins is probably of a much higher rank than most of them. Um, and he even says in part two, you know, the worst they can say of me is that I am a younger son. So he's probably a younger son of someone in the aristocracy. So he's probably m- a little more familiar with the similar things that that Prince Hal would be familiar with. But he's also completely chosen to hang out with Prince Hal in these like brothels and taverns and stuff. So definitely uh, th- th- these guys like to party, I think. Um, yeah, you think? <laughs> I, I think, I think. Yeah. But it also makes me think of like Norm in Cheers, <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah, walks in and they're all like Norm, you know, but he doesn't actually really do anything. <laughs> it's just like, he has this one little tavern that's kind of his castle mm. that he sort of is the overlord of in some way. Yeah. He's found this one place to be important. Yeah. Um, but in the actual grand scheme of things, he's probably not at all. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it believes it. Yeah. Um, But I think there is something that does seem to energize Hal about this interaction, too. Like you were saying, you know, there's something a a little bit restless about about his energy. 
and and then suddenly it's like he's he's a bit galvanized into like oh cool something to do and then <laughs> points exit and then we switch back to verse right whoa okay uh, oh yeah alex please may, may i ask just um point of clarification because i love this surah um <laughs> i have cases of buckram for the nonce this is yes. like something to disguise what would obviously be their very recognizable garb but what is that that's such a great question there there are so many interesting uh words in here that have to do with like the texture of the material so a buff jerkin was like leathery kind of smooth tight fitting here the cases of buckram would be like a suit or an outer garment that was made of very coarse linen so mm. it was probably pr pretty rough um and uh and and then the visards would be like a mask or a visor that 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 you would put on as well but there's yeah there's a lot of interesting um language to do with the texture of of objects and, and clothing in here that mm. I, I quite like but it's it's always so difficult like how do you convey that to the audience without like pulling out some buckram you know like, <laughs> so it's a, always an interesting challenge of how to how to land those for sure great so prince hal is left alone and switches to verse i call this little section the power of a second act i know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness yet herein i will imitate the sun who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world. That when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. And all the year we're playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work, but when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleasanteth but rare accidents. So when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering o'er my fault, shall so more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offense a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. Quite a speech. It's yeah, almost got... eerie to me how rhythmically regular it is. There is like not an irregularity in that speech, which is weird because there <laughs> was in the first scene, there were quite a few initial trochees where there's, you know, the, the, the beginning foot is sort of rhythmically shifted so that it's da-dum instead of da-dum, but this is like so regular. I don't know what it means, but it just hit me I as you're reading this it. Is kind of a, I mean, I wonder if this is kind of a moment of like um, Kelly was saying, the first scene really sets us up to think Hotspur's the hero. If this mm. is Hal sort of going like, no, this is my story. <laughs> and I have it and I have you in my pocket I'm gonna do it when I want to do it so just watch this it's gonna be great like I wondered just as you were saying that like oh maybe this is so in control because it's helping the audience go like no this guy we want to see who this guy's mm. gonna be I was just about to say this is the first because even throughout all of scene two I still would be thinking well it's got to be Hotspur you know like <laughs> 
this this guy is talking about thieving with you know and whoring with people in this tavern like clearly he's not very kingly but then he does make this speech that's very self-aware you know and very regulated and it's like oh you see there's a calmness you see there's a regality you see you know you actually you're you're starting to get a glimpse of maybe it won't be Hotspur you know maybe it is going to be Hal I think but this is the first clue and I mean we've gone through two big scenes with thinking who's this guy you know the king doesn't <laughs> like him you know the king doesn't like him Falstaff is you know he banters with him so it's not like a respectful relationship mm-hmm. to think like this is this is the one like this is yeah. the guy this is the guy okay but there's but there's nothing honorable in this right like that's what i think like the 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 honorable henry 5 that he will become by henry 5 this is not it. i mean what what is the uh, so when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes. I mean, he's he's quite literally saying that like he's scamming. He knows the scam. He knows what the game of the scam is. And that doesn't strike me as particularly Shakespearean princely behavior. Like there's that's, that's this is not an honorable we we like right like am I crazy for thinking that there's no like real honor in this? He's still kind of there's the, the under like the growth that will happen by the end of Henry five like we are still in the nascent like uh, yeah. shape of it. Like, it is controlled. He is more together than we previously thought in the scene, but he's just pretty much being like I'm a I'm a I'm a con the entire country. Uh, and that's how they're going to love me. But he's also <laughs> going to con the con. You know, like, it's talking about this plan of thievery and everything. And it's he's saying, like, I'm, you know. It's my, my reformation is glittering over my fault, right? And, like, glittering over, that's just, that's leaf. That's not solid gold. Like, right? Like, it's still wood <laughs> underneath it. Like, again, talking about... Uh, because I am so into the historiography and like the text and when it was all being written at the same time. If John is close to this, that's where you have the whole gilding the lily, uh, gil- gilding the lily metaphor from, mm-hmm. and that glittering over my faults again, like brings me back to that. Well, I, mean, I, I have a hard time reading this as a fully hero's soliloquy. Totally. <laughs> and I, I, I totally agree with that. I do think there's a, uh... A slight distinction, which is that what is fake, I think what he's saying that what is fake is the hanging out in the bar, the friendship with Falstaff. Mm. I don't know that we believe him, whether we believe him or not. I think if just in the text, the real thing is that he is princely and the thing that he is uh, doing that is not sincere um, is like putting himself amidst dirt right? Like hiding mm-hmm. himself with clouds so that people think he's even better. So political, yeah. right? He's he's such a politician. And as a Lancastrian, when there's, you know, a, this, what is it, the granddaughter of a tutor on the crown? I mean, any little capacity to undermine like the most popular king in all of England, other than like <laughs> since Richard the First, right? It's, it's interesting. I say, I was kind of like, yeah, he's ambitious. He shows that he's willing to lie to get what he wants and to make himself look better. And he ends up invading France to quell civil wars and England loves him for it. And 
somehow Shakespeare has to remind everyone that God actually preferred the other family because that's why she's queen. <laughs> I also I mean, think he's... it's interesting that he doesn't directly bring up his dad because that would be really logical to me to be like, my dad doesn't believe I can do this, but just he watch. And instead yeah. he only says, I falsify men's hopes. So he's, he's kind of casting his father in this group. But it's so obvious from the scene we've just had where his dad's like, I wish he was switched in the night that this is about his dad. And I think that's also, yeah. it doesn't really track in terms of like, is he a hero yet or not? But I just, I'm always struck by that in this speech that he's, he's not bringing up his dad when he's alone and he could. And he could be like, my dad sucks, but he doesn't do it. <laughs> um, but also it, his next he, speech- he avoids talking about his father throughout the play until he encounters him, which doesn't happen till act three. I'm sorry, Coy, go ahead. So yeah, just because it's interesting because I think that it's interesting that does he at this point think that he's fooling the people, but that his dad is in on it? Like, does he think that his dad trusts him? Because when he makes his big speech to his father, it's after his father openly says to his face, I wish I didn't have you as a son. I wish it was Sotspur. And, you know, it, it, it the Henry kind of thinks that he's running this gambit and that his dad is totally cool and in on it. And it's like, yeah, he'll he'll get over it when he's over it. He doesn't realize his dad has lost faith in the game. And that's why he then has to prove himself in front of his dad when is when he's confronted with that. I can make that encounter very, very emotional for him, actually, like a, a kind of emotionally oh. shocking moment. Yeah. How do you, Ari, because I, I, I know that you're so good with this time period. Do you know how popular St. Thomas Aquinas would have been like around <laughs> this time period? Because because like he's well, it's, he's doing a St. Thomas Aquinas, right? He's like, I'm a sinner. I sin a lot. Thus, when I become holy, I will appear even holier for I have sinned so much. But the irony of all this for me is St. Thomas Aquinas very clearly states that nobody should do what St. Thomas Aquinas did. <laughs> like, like that is a very clear part of that uh, text. And so I, I, and again, this might be my own um, privileges and backgrounds and where I grew up and how I do, but this so reminds me of the spoiled rich kid who is trying to explain away all of his bad behavior and bad choices mm -hmm. and by being like, ah, but there's a plan. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think that like, what's cool about the character is, is that the, the plan does come together. But I, I again, I, I really think that this is such an interesting turn that he, he feels the need to turn to the audience and to tell them that everything that they just saw is kind of an act and that he is going to be a good king one day. And it's just so fascinating that after everything that just happened, he really does feel the need to like turn to the audience and address them. It's not, it's not, it's not that. It's not Don't that. Don't worry guys. <laughs> yeah. he, he Hold on for me. two more plays. He doesn't strike me as somebody who is like, totally in control of, yeah. of himself and his right like I, I keep thinking of the crown right now because i just watched it but like the self-destructive things that that a charles does right when he's <laughs> young or even Anne or things like that um the itchiness that you mentioned earlier sam like really resonated with me um he, he's quite mean to false stuff I, I do think there's genuine affection there but he's also like keeping him at arm's length he's quite mean to him like uh, I do think he's itchy. And so like, yes, this is his plan, but like, 
no, it's not that he like completely breaks. I don't think when everybody else leaves yeah. the stage and like takes off the mask and is like, I had the whole, everything you did was completely within my control. You know? <laughs> like in my mind, I see it as yeah. it's a false exit, right? Like I so imagine him like mm-hmm. about to leave and then look over and notice that the audience had yeah. just witnessed like everything that happened and really <laughs> feels the need to be like, Oh, you know, because he even starts that way, right? Uh, I, I know you all and will while uphold the unyoked humors of your idleness is his first, like, that's, that's his first address to the crowd. Uh, you know, <laughs> calling them, I like, he, there is this real sense. So I just sort of imagine that, like, oh, Oh, oh. <laughs> the crown it's really interesting to think of this kid who wasn't born knowing he was going to be king yeah becoming mm-hmm. aware of the public and becoming aware of what it means to be a, a royal person um that so much of it as i've learned from the crown is about what people perceive of you that he's like oh i have to set but i don't know it's interesting to think of it as a moment of oh i for the first time have to consider persona and and not just do whatever i feel like doing and, and in those I, so, days, mm-hmm. it meant the persona meant you had to be a valiant warrior. Mm-hmm. Like you had to, you had to be a fighter. You know, you had to be able to rally the troops. So, mm-hmm. it's interesting that you know he, It's we start his journey in a bar, but <laughs> we end it with you know, you know, pull the walls, you know, fill the walls up with your English dead. I mean, <laughs> so. He reminds me a he lot does. of this character of like the adaptation and what happens to like in Hollywood, why like I constantly go like the Lord of the Rings and they screwed up the ends. Like, and, and you go <laughs> in, you're like, I know this character from the book that I love or from history. And then, I mean, even in the crown, a lot of uh, Brits are kind of saying that this didn't happen. They're upset because the drama portrays it in a different light. And I think most people coming into this show would be like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy's going to be Henry V. He's the best. And the first thing you see of him is just like a bunch of him. What's going on? He wasn't that. Why is he horrible? And then he kind of <laughs> is like, like, so it's like, I mean, you're also giving him an arc that doesn't exist in history. Like Shakespeare's kind of letting him go from one place to another. But you're also everyone who's coming in seeing like, yeah, we get to see Henry V as a young man. He's a total badass. And like, no, he actually was a crazy thief and wild. You want to learn more? Watch the other two plays. Watch the other day. May I make just one comment? I know you will and will a while uphold the the first line I assumed was in reference to all of his bar partners, not to the audience. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's that's that is interesting. Well it can be both. That was my assumption. It was a reflection of the people in the bar. Yeah. Which I wonder. And I think perchance the audience is also in the bar with him. <laughs> right, I wonder yeah, if it's well, both, yeah, right? His status yeah. is higher than everybody's in that theater, right? Like every yeah. other character on that stage other than his dad and then everybody else who's in the audience watching. Right, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, it's, it's this interesting, I was in, a, uh, like as a quick little, but I was in a production of Julius Caesar in college where they were like, oh, we'll never have 30 kids that we don't have to pay again. Let's have huge crowds on stages. So like all the big <laughs> crowd scenes had all these people on it and, everything fell apart because friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ear. That's, that's directly to the audience because those are the Romans, but they're also, the, so I think that you're absolutely right, Deborah, that it's both, they are the tavern goers, yeah. but they're the audience in much in the same way that Hal has to be like, I am both a complete and utter ragamuffin, but I am also the prince. Yeah. Uh, it's that <laughs> duality that's happening there. And I just, I, again, a line, I, I'll so offend to make offense <laughs> a skill is such a 
bold line to say, like uh, on it's his way like out the door. It's more like a Hotspur line, isn't it? It's much more like a fierce Hotspur line than it is at this moment, anyway. At this moment, as a Hal line, it just seems that way. Yeah. And speaking of Hotspur, let's go meet Hotspur. Okay. Let's go over and meet him. Um, I just nice want to say the, be- the <laughs> beginning of this of this scene. It is extraordinary that we begin it as I picture it in the throne room. And by the end, a rebellion has been plotted in the throne room. It's extraordinary. And to me, it just like raises the stakes on this scene in a, in a huge way. So let us delve right on into King versus the Percy family. My blood hath been too cold and temperate and apt to stir at these indignities, and you have found me, for accordingly you tread upon my patience. But be sure, I will from henceforth rather be myself, mighty and to be feared than my condition, which hath been smooth as oil, soft as young down, and therefore lost that title of respect, which the proud soul ne'er pays but to the proud. Our house, my sovereign liege, little deserves the scourge of greatness to be used on it, and that same greatness too, which our own hands have helped to make so poorly. My lord, Worcester, get thee gone, for I do see danger and disobedience in thine eyes. Oh, sir, your presence is too bold and peremptory and majesty might never yet endure the moody frontier of a servant brow. You have good leave to leave us. When we need your use and counsel, we shall send for it. You were about to speak? Yea, my good lord. Those prisoners in your highness's name demanded, which Harry Percy here at Halmedon took, were, as he says, not with such strength denied as is delivered to your majesty. Either envy, therefore, or misprision is guilty of this fault and not my son. My liege, I did deny no prisoners. But I remember when the toil, when the fight was done, when I was dry with rage and extreme toil, breathless and faint, Leaning upon my sword, came there a certain lord, neat and trimly dressed, fresh as a bridegroom, and his chin, new reaped, showed like a stubble land at harvest home. He was perfumed like a milliner, and twixt his finger and his thumb, he held a poncet box, which ever and anon he gave his nose and took it away again, who therewith angry when it next came there took it in snuff, and still he smiled and talked, and as the soldiers bore dead bodies by, he called them untaught knaves, unmannerly, to bring a slovenly unhandsome corpse betwixt the wind and his nobility. With many holiday and lady terms, he questioned me, amongst the rest demanded my prisoners in your majesty's behalf. I then, all smarting with my wounds being cold, to be so pestered with a popinjay, out of my grief and my impatience answered neglectingly, 
I know not what he should or he should not, for he made me so mad to see him shine so brisk and smell so sweet and talk so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds. God save the mark. And telling me the sovereign's thing on earth was mm, parmesity for an inward bruise. And <laughs> it was a great pity, so it was, this villainous soapy that should be digged out of the bowels of the harmless earth, which many a good tall fellow had destroyed so cowardly. And mm, but for these vile guns, he himself would have been a soldier. This bald, unjointed chat of his my lord, I answered indirectly, as I said, and I beseech you, let not his report come current for an accusation betwixt my love and your high majesty. The circumstance considered, good my lord, what our lord Harry Percy then had said to such a person and in such a place at such a time with all the rest retold, may reasonably die and never rise to do him wrong or in any way impeach what then he said and say he unsay it now. Why well, yet he doth deny his prisoners, but with proviso and exception that we at our own charge shall ransom straight his brother-in-law, the foolish Mortimer, who on my soul hath willfully betrayed the lives of those that he did lead to fight against that great magician, damned Glendower, whose daughter, as we hear, that Earl of March hath lately married. So our coffers then be emptied to redeem a traitor home? Shall we buy treason and indent with fears when they have lost and forfeited themselves? No, on the barren mountains, let him starve. For I shall never hold that man, my friend, whose tongue shall ask me for one penny cost to ransom home revolted Mortimer. Re revolted Mortimer. He never did fall off. My sovereign liege, but by the chance of war. To prove that true needs no more but one tongue for all those wounds, those mouthed wounds, which valiantly he took when on the gentle Severn's sedgy bank in single opposition, hand to hand, he did confound the best part of an hour in changing hardenment with the great Glen Dower. Three times they breathed and three times did they drink upon agreement of swift Severn's flood, who then affrighted with their bloody looks ran fearfully among the trembling reeds and hid his crisp head in the hollow bank, blood stained with these valiant combatants. Never did bare and rotten policy color her working with such deadly wounds, nor never could the noble Mortimer receive so many and all willingly. Then let not him be slandered with revolt. Thou dost belie him, Percy. Thou dost belie him. He never did encounter with Glendower. I tell thee, he durst as well have met the devil alone as Owen Glendower for an enemy. Art thou not ashamed? But Sirrah, henceforth, let me not hear you speak of Mortimer. Send me your prisoners with the speediest means, or you shall hear in such a kind from me as will displease you. 
my Lord Northumberland, we license your departure with your son. Send us your prisoners or you will hear of it. All right, let's just pause there. That was a huge amount of character interaction. We've got three new characters. We finally get to hear from Blunt, who's this awesome knight who's going to show up periodically and like save the day quite a few times. Genevieve, what is your impression of this guy from your first couple of speeches? I mean, for a guy in the thrones room, he's not doing a good job keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> he, I just picture like his dad slash uncle, like hand on the shoulder, like this is not, this is not stop you know and and it's it's already so fun to think as an actor like where are you holding back and where where are you like nope I gotta make my point honestly (laughs) as I was reading it this time I was like he's this isn't a one-to-one because but he's reminding me a lot of George Costanza just like you can't let it go and uh you know George Costanza is not a fighter but he he is a verbal fighter and I, I I think he's quite fun in that sense Absolutely. I love I, I just wrote like, just hearing you speak. It's like we think of Hotspur, we were told again, it's like this reversal of expectations, because we're told he's the, the straightest plant. And I think in my mind, that means like, he's also very courtly and very like, mannered and blah, blah, blah. And he's not a typical courtier. Like he is, he is guns and drums and wounds and, and death and sword and sweat, you know, That's it's amazing. Name. Yeah, Hotspur. He's very, he's very hot. Yeah. Yes, but you yeah, know it's okay. it's interesting because yeah. uh, when 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 uh, King Henry IV is bullying Brooke back in the last play, uh, they all the the accusations that are being made against Richard II are actually the that courtly, too courtly, too with all the people. Like we need to return back to those rough and tumble, you know, warrior kings of old. And then it's really funny that then once Bolingbroke has the power again, then suddenly it's like, what are you doing, Hosper? Like, why are you, <laughs> why are you talking? And I, I'm really fascinated too in the scene how it really seems like Northumberland um, and Hotspur get off on the wrong foot. I'm like a little bit obsessed with the my lord and then just getting cut off immediately because it's such a weird dramatic little thing and Shakespeare by this time is a little bit more careful than to like throw a line out like that I think and I'm again on just this page and so far in this act I'm a little obsessed with that tiny my lord that Northumberland has. I think it's a really important moment I think it's actually about Worcester right it's like yeah the king has been told yeah. that Worcester is the problem and then Worcester gets a line in and then Northumberland's supposed to speak next and the king sends Worcester out of the room like I think he's yeah. betraying an emotional state a little bit here it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a good point Mitchell yeah absolutely and mm-hmm. I, I I think there's like we all need to we all need to come down. I'm very fascinated. I love tracking when characters switch from you to thou and thou to you. It usually signals something. In this first speech, the king is speaking to all of them and is using you, which would be the formal and respectful way to address. Then he says, Worcester, get thee gone, right? Which to me like signals maybe um, this is sort of a theory that I, I don't I don't know enough about it to know that it is you know was was something that happened in Shakespeare's rehearsal practice, but that potentially it means that the king got very close to Worcester 
that the use of thee and thou is is um, an intimate that uh, is about also physical proximity. So that could be a really interesting thing to play with while staging this is. Um, and there's a lot of switches that he has. It's like he he gets worked up and then he calms himself back down. Very similar to to Hotspur in this in this yeah, guy. I think there are a lot of like. I just want to point out too um, that the thing Worcester says, which sets him off, is that same greatness too. Meaning meaning Henry having the throne, which our own hands have hoped to make so portly. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we're going to see like as this goes on that Henry is very sensitive to this like idea that he is king because of the Northumberlands and because oh, of you know yeah. this this family's help. And absolutely like, quite dangerous to say that so explicitly in the room of power <laughs> to be like i put you there like it's like yeah. we all agreed we would pretend we wouldn't talk about that anymore yeah they're all kind absolutely of but from and, their and perspective Lynn, as well oh, sorry, sorry go ahead Coy. oh yeah just from their perspective like they made a pact with a guy who wasn't king and they helped him on the throne and now he's not being all kingly and like not respecting his crew that got him there <laughs> absolutely and this and this sets up the uh, a conflict that is also a, a big historical question we historians have ha- have a very difficult time sort of pulling out the threads of who said what when and what promises were made in 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 actual life and i was just wondering lynn in terms of the character so you already had that that first scene as henry do you feel, was there something about the language that's different in this? Do, it, it, does he feel like he's different from the first scene? Are there are there changes to the character I, that you noticed? I feel like he's so much more directed in this. And in a way, the first scene takes him on this emotional arc, like, you know, from being conflicted between what, what his quote, greater purpose, you know, is, is to go fight the holy wars, you know? Um, and but that what it comes down to is blood and lineage yeah. and, and threats of the crown and everything uh, of losing the crown and I I think that that this is so so pointed in that it, that expression in that first scene for me um, when I talked about in the beginning about being fascinated with the family dynamics you know the the just the the idea of wanting your progeny to be somebody else, you know, to be seeing the perfect person that you want to have birthed, you know, and that, so that when in this face-to-face meeting, it's just all in his face, you know, all up in his face, all of the, the whole thing about the, having the perfect son in front of you, yet the son is denying what is right, what would be rightfully yours if he were your son. You know, absolutely. Where those prisoners would be mine. Yeah, would be mine. But he's not my son. And I think there's there's wonderful ways of kind of mapping the different meanings of blood in these plays. I've, I talked about this in both of our King Richard and the King John sessions. That blood kind of has this, I guess, kind of triple meaning in these plays of being that which keeps us alive, you know, is what is what kind of nourishes us in a way of blood being something that we share and these plays being so much about family dramas. And in Mm -hmm. that sense that the blood, but then also blood representing bloodshed and violence. And that frequently when characters talk about blood, it's more than one of those meanings that's kind of 
mapped into that imagery. Um, and Britt, I wanted, what is your, um, what is your take on, on Blunt? We, we heard that he's a dear, true, industrious friend. What is your um, take on him so far as a sort of diplomat in this scene? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that, that just seems to be my overwhelming impression is that this is somebody who is even keeled and even tempered and wants to, you know, make sure that the cockfighting doesn't happen. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's an important role in this in this court you know yeah everybody is is very quick to kind of yeah be front-footed you know without um taking over or um taking it all into consideration i guess yeah i like that a lot i love how uh you know in aaron sorkin's words that um blunt never uses you know, one word when he can use 500. Because <laughs> there's so many qualifiers in that little speech. It's like, in That's such a place, point. at such a time. It almost feels like he's and the rest. trying to find it as he's yeah. working through it and yeah. there it is. When he said that, it. so he's unsay it. Yeah, it's, there's so many qualifiers in it. That's hilarious. Yeah. I also wonder Absolutely. if that tells and, us oh, yeah, sorry, something about ahead, how Mitchell. people have to deal with Henry. Like, I wonder if, because the people who are sort of on Henry's side do that, I think, a little bit in the first scene as well. Mm. They sort of have to couch everything in terms that he would be find acceptable. Absolutely. And and that's part of the the profession of a courtier. You know, I, I remember being utterly fascinated reading the the book of the courtier and all of these kind of very elaborate, intricate ways of interacting with each other. And there's so much coded reference um, in just the smallest look or the smallest speech, or did you look at so-and-so before you looked at so-and-so? I mean, it was, it was quite a rigid set of rules to live by. Um, so now we move on to the, Wait. oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, there's just one thing, because I, I, I think it's really that that uh, uh, qualifying language that has to be used. I, I just sort of think that no, there's no king other than Richard that thought that they were going to be king in the first half of the Tetralogy, as was mentioned before. And so I, I think that with all of that qualifying language, you're dealing with a king who for the majority of their life did not think that they were going to be king who who did not realize or have any respect for how heavy the crown would be yeah. um and uh, i think it's a really fascinating point that got brought up that none of these characters had any schooling or inclination or thought that they would be king and that's the original sin right they kill the person who should be king and then yes hal is going to turn into a good king but then the curse cuts him down yeah before he can actually uh, bring that forward. So I, 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 I never thought about that before in like the first Tetralogy. And so I wonder if that, uh, I, like if you went back and did Richard II again or listening to the language of Richard II, do they qualify all those things? The only qualification they, that really comes to mind is yesterday it would have yes. been okay, but like that's the only one that comes to mind. Well, they, they, they did in a certain sense. I, I, I think, um, I think there's definitely a lot of, um, coded language referencing to Bolingbroke in act one of Richard II and sort of like, what did you say to him, O'Merle, when he left? And, you know, O'Merle comes up with this remarkably, like remarkably witty. Oh, I just said farewell. And I wish I didn't even have to say that, you know, there's a lot of kind of the performance of, 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 
of being well-spoken um, is definitely something that I think runs through um, a, a, a lot of a lot of the plays. Um, so speaking of well-spoken and people who know how to rage well, let's uh, move on to the section I call, hell no, I won't go. And then a rebellion is planned <laughs> um, in the throne room. <laughs> and let's of course remember that these, these characters that we're um, seeing Hotspur is the son of Northumberland and Worcester is the brother of Northumberland. So Worcester is Hotspur's uncle. So yet again, here we have another family dynamic that's as we will see a little bit can not very not totally stable i'll just leave it at that <laughs> and if the devil come and roar for them i will not send them i will after straight and tell him so for i will ease my heart all day i make a hazard of my head what drunk with collars stay and pause a while hm. here comes your uncle Speak of Mortimer? Zounds, I will speak of him and let my soul want mercy if I do not join with him. <laughs> On his part, I'll empty all these veins and shed my dear blood drop by drop in the dust, but I will lift the downtrod Mortimer as high in the air as this unthankful king, as this ingrate and cankered Bolingbroke. Brother, the king hath made your nephew mad. Who struck this heat up after I was gone? You will, forsooth, have all my prisoners. And when I urged the ransom once again of my wife's brother, then his cheek looked pale and on my face he turned an eye of death trembling even at the name of Mortimer. I cannot blame him. Was not he proclaimed by Richard the dead is the next of he blood? He was. I heard the proclamation. And then it was when the unhappy king, whose wrongs in us God pardon, did set forth upon his Irish expedition from whence he intercepted, did return to be disposed and shortly murdered. And for whose death we, in the world's wide mouth, live scandalized and foully spoken of. But soft, I pray you, did King Richard then proclaim my brother, Edmund Mortimer, heir to the crown? He did. Myself did hear it. Nay, then. I cannot blame his cousin King that wished him on the barren mountain starve. But shall it be that you, that set the crown upon the head of this forgetful man, and for his sake wear the detested blot of murderous subordination, shall it be that you a world of curses undergo, being the agents or base second means, the cords, the ladder, or the hangman, rather? Ooh, pardon me that I descend so low to show the line and the predicament wherein you range under this subtle cane. Shall it be for shame spoken in these days or fill up in chronicles in time to come that men of your nobility and power did gauge them both in an unjust behalf as both of you, God pardon it, have done? 
to put down Richard, that sweet, lovely rose, and plant this thorn, this canker balling brook. Shall it in more shame be further spoken that you are fooled, discarded, and shook off by him for whom these shames you underwent? No. Yet time serves wherein you may redeem your banished honors and restore yourselves into the good thoughts of the world again. Revenge the jeering and disdained contempt of this proud king who studies day and night to answer all the debt he owes to you, even with the bloody payment of your debts. Therefore, I say- Peace, cousin, say no more. And now I will unclasp a secret book, and to your quick conceiving discontents I'll read you matter deep and dangerous, as full of peril and adventurous spirit as to o'erwalk a current roaring loud on the unsteadfast footing of a spear. If you fall in, good night, or sink or swim. Send danger from the east unto the west, so honor cross it from the north to south, and let them grapple. The blood more stirs to rouse a lion than to start a hare. Imagination of some great exploit drives him beyond the bounds of patience. By heavens, methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honor from the pale-faced moon or dive into the bottom of the deep where fathom line could never touch the ground and pluck up drowned honor by the locks so that so he that doth redeem her thence might wear without co-rival all her dignities, but out upon this half-faced fellowship. He apprehends a world of figures here, but not the form of what he should attend. Good cousin, give me audience for a while. I cry you mercy. Those same noble Scots that are your prisoners? I'll keep them all. By God, he shall not have a Scot of them. No, if a Scot would save his soul, he shall not. I'll keep him by this hand. You start away and lend no ear unto my purposes. Those prisoners you shall keep. Nay, I will. That's flat. He said he would not ransom Mortimer, forbade my tongue to speak of Mortimer, but I will find him when he lies asleep and in his ear I'll holla Mortimer, and nay, ah, nay, I'll have a starling, shall be taught to speak nothing but Mortimer, and give it him to keep his anger still in motion. Hear you, cousin, a word? All studies here I solemnly defy, save how to gall and pinch this Bolingbrook, and that same sword and buckler, Prince of Wales. <laughs> but that I think his father loves him not, and would be glad he met with some mischance, I would have him poisoned with a pot of ale. Farewell, kinsman. I'll talk to you when you are better tempered to attend. Why, what a wasp-stung and impatient fool. Art thou to break into this woman's mood, tying thine ear to no tongue but thine own? What? Look you, I am a whipped and scorched with rods, nettled and stung with pismires when I hear of this vile politician, Bolingbroke. In Richard's time, what do you call a place? Oh, plague upon it, it's in Gloucestershire. 
it, it was where the madcap duke his uncle kept his, his uncle york where i first bowed my knee unto this king of smiles this, this is rolling brook oh blood it is where you and he came back from ravenspur at berkeley castle you say true what a candy deal of courtesy this fawning greyhound Ben did proffer me. Look when his infant fortune came to age, and oh, gentle Harry Percy, and oh, kind cousin. Ooh, the devil take such cousiners. God forgive me. I, I, good uncle, tell your tale. I have done. Nay, if you have not to it again, we stay your leisure. I've done. Faith. All right, let's just pause there for a little bit because I love like this family dynamic. They just kind of step out of the way and are like, all right, just let him just let him run. He'll tire himself out. It's like it's like when a kid has a tantrum, like sometimes the best thing to do. I've taken care of quite a few children. And when they're of a certain age, like at some point, you can't stop the tantrum. And like the best thing to do is to kind of allow them to tire themselves out. And um, I, I, I get the sense that we, we, this is not the first time he has raged like this. There, there seems to be a, a familiarity to this kind of behavior with the way that Northumberland and, and, and Worcester are <laughs> talking about him. Um, Kelly, what, what is your impression of Worcester now coming in and having this family dynamic to, to, to attend to? I, I mean, Worcester is, I think, arguably one of the smarter, or at least sort of one Machiavellian characters, at least. And he's mm -hmm. he's a very smart political mind. Very much. And I think that he knows he needs Hotspur, but he, Hotspur is also a liability. Mm. Yeah. You know, and so it's kind of like, oh, my God. Like, I, I would say at this point, Worcester's probably more like, man, I wish I had Hal. <laughs> you know, pliable, pliable, easily directable Hal to just to just pull out my plans, and you know, it, at Worcester's to me like he's a little bit of like a Dick Cheney. You know, he's like he's Ooh, puppeteering like things that. behind the scenes. He's very smart, but he's like I'm not going to be the guy in the front because those guys get killed, yeah. which he does. But yeah, know. absolutely, very high status. I think there's something. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was uh, working with the the actor who I cast as as Worcester. He's very used to playing very front footed characters, and um, he's he's actually sort of much more of a Hotspur kind of actor than a than a Worcester actor. And I was really, I had a lot of fun sort of saying like, try the back foot, try pulling instead of pushing. And it was really cool. It was like. He was like discovering this this energy that he hadn't really played with before, and it was very powerful. Um, and I, oh. I think that to me is what what is so kind of magnetic about Worcester is that he's very politically smart. To me, he is the double of Henry the Fourth. To me, they're they're very much parallel characters, and that they are the political mind mm -hmm. behind their respective parties. He's a chess master. I mean, you know, Hotspur says very much. He, he yeah. says, you know, you are the one who crowned this king, and now this king doesn't pay you. The, you know, it's like it's like the Godfather. It's like you know, it went outside <laughs> the family. He's not paying me the respect I'm due. You know, <laughs> absolutely. I love that, that Hotspur's supreme insult. It's like 
the you know this fawning greyhound but but no it's it's he's a vile politician which which is just uh just phenomenal and in in my experience the audience always gets a huge laugh from the audience when it's just like oh what is he he's a he's a politician you know and everyone goes yay that's right um yeah sam go ahead well i think that there's like uh, three things which is I, I think it's fascinating that they each have the wrong son that idea that actually yeah. how would be better in the political machiavellian sort of like court uh ideal Whereas I think that that's a really fascinating concept. Um, I think it's fascinating that these Worcester and Northumberland are involved now in their second potential regicide. Uh, I think that like uh, traitors gonna traitor is kind of like an interesting character thing for these two men. Um, and then in the picking of like, I, I, these are three really well-picked plays to do at the same time because um, I see so much of Falconbridge in Hotspur in this scene um, from King John, mm. the bastard. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same complaint. These politicians, yeah. you know, it's 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 nothing is clear. Nothing is direct with you people, um, and and this need for clarity and directness and action over inaction. And yes, we may lose, but at least it will be clear. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I mm -hmm. think it's really fascinating um, that there's a that there is always a character in these uh, very political plays that is just calling for clarity, that they don't really yeah. care about win or loss so much as that win or that loss is clear and mm -hmm. can be moved on from. Right. Because there's clearly this event and nobody can move on from it. And because of that. So I just think that that's really fascinating. That's what's popping out for at the very beginning of this and well curated absolutely absolutely um alex uh do, do you have a an impression of northumberland who is this guy well i was very taken with at least what i was perceiving was a sort of almost fatherly like humor mixed mm. with frustration <laughs> Like that this is a scene that has replayed many times and so it's almost amusing were it not for the stakes or the, um, again, like this navigation of power dynamics. So like in the room with the king, um, it has a different feeling than alone, kind of like with family or with intimates where it's like, Jesus, you know, like. <laughs> Shut up, kid. <laughs> but it intrigued me that um, Hotspur was given such space to talk by by his elders, actually. that So like, there's something then in, in his character that demands that and that takes that up and that perhaps is what's so compelling energetically about him to the king, in a way, oh, yeah. um, that, he, that he demands that space and that audience. Actually, Absolutely. He sort of lets him just go on a page long speech at the very beginning. It's kind of extraordinary. I, I, I think I remember when, when we staged it, there was something really, really integral about discovering Hotspur's power as a storyteller, that actually the reason that he kept going was because he was kind of entertaining everyone. Like he's doing impressions. He's doing impressions of this silly Lord who showed up and who's all shiny and talking about, you know, oh, what are they doing to the earth? These horrible people. And that there was something entertaining. And then at a certain point we're like, oh, 
oh, we're in the, we got to keep it together here. Um, Genevieve, how, how have you, uh, has the character changed since that, since that speech for you so far? I mean, it's interesting to me that he's actually, he's definitely much more um, spitfire. There's right, there's but he's that much more restrained around the king. Like I, I, he's restrained around the king more than he is in this scene where he's like, fuck the king. But he's not that, he's not doing a, he doesn't do a good job keeping it together. It's also really telling mm. to me that he feels so confident in shaming his elders. And it made me wonder, cause I don't know if he's like a much better soldier than his father or his uncle, because if the value mm. of him is that he's like, can kill people and and can lead battle and if he has some sort of like if the masculinity who has power is a little bit like this kid is younger than us but has I don't know if that's the case but I was just sort of trying to find like what's the thing about Hotspur that that his dad lets him say this because an angry son often makes me think you have an angry parent you know like I don't I'm like where does that come from yeah that's a wonderful point. That's a wonderful point. I, I, I think there's a, we get a hint. It's like, we never, I think he's just so charismatic that he's a sort of natural leader. And we get a hint from uh, after, actually after he dies, when his wife is talking about him and she has this beautiful speech describing the power that he had over people. And he was like, uh, you know, she, she has this beautiful line that all of his imperfections were what became known as valiant behavior because they belonged to him, you know? And there's something really interesting about that, that his imperfections, what is her line? Like became the valiant, um, that he was courage incarnate, that he was sort of chivalry incarnate, which is amazing. Cause when I think of chivalry, I think of people being very like proper and, you know, somehow, but this is, this is more to do with valor. And I, I think his most striking imagery that we get so far is the, the way he envisions rescuing honor. This, this imagery of honor being something that is touchable, that is tactile, that is meant to be held. Um, we'll, we'll get a wonderful antithesis to that you know, from Falstaff later on. But I think, I think that to me is like what, what holds the play together are these sort of character antitheses that, you know, he's the epitome of nobility, which is also just like out of control and a bit wild. Um, it's also like really telling to me that the thing that sets him off in front of the king that he returns to in this is the Mortimer, that, that his wife's brother, yeah. that he's like yep. really loyal. And oh, yeah. Really turned off by people or politicians who are thinking about the chess game. And he's like, it's blood, it's life. So I think there's something very redeemable about that. The, the loyalty yeah. question, the loyalty question is really interesting because bullying, uh, 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 Hotspur is in Richard too, right? As a character, like he's young, but he's still there yeah. as a character and he's part of the rebellion. And then he says to put down Richard, that sweet, lovely Rose. Uh, it's like what play what play do you think you were in but and 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 he's plotting you know he's plotting another regicide so i i that idea of loyalty and and that linkage of loyalty right because there is that loyalty towards his wife's brother but then he's planning a traitorous coup or starting the idea of a traitorous coup and i think that that juxtaposes really well with hal at the end of the last scene 
who is like, no, it looks like I'm a drunken rake, but I'm actually quite princely. And so I think that (laughs) that dichotomy between the two of them, right, the really loyal, steadfast Hotspur who is planning a traitorous action, and then you have the absolutely down and dirty wastrel that is Hal, who's going to end up becoming quite noble. And so I think that that is an interesting thing that you pointed out in that loyalty there, Genevieve, because it's undercut by what they're kind of talking about. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And again, I think, you know, the best, uh, the best Shakespeare acting advice is, you know, from, from John Barton is like, find the inconsistencies and play them to the hilt. You know, that's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite directions for, well, really for any, for any actor to take. Alex, did you have something as well? Oh, just that I know I'm layering a lot of my contemporary biases on this, but from the scenes that we've looked at, it's so, I find that my loyalties lay with the guy who hangs out in the tavern and the guy who (laughs) works with thieves rather than like the border (laughs) patrol agent. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying trying to unpack the, um, how their roles might resonate differently or perhaps similarly to um, an audience contemporaneous with the time that the play was written um, in so far as I think there is actually something there's, there's the view of the tavern dweller as like the spoiled rich drunk kid. And there's also the view of the tavern dweller as the, the person who kind of like has their priorities straight actually who cares yeah. about filling and delights and pleasure and fun and indulgence and being with the people rather than the guy who is sort of obsessed with um, maintaining a firm delineation and border between these kind of <laughs> versions. well to be uh, clear but- I think like border agent i love that an important an important factor though is that like it's cool if like normal people are into going to the pub but when it's like the king you want them to be a little bit better Mm. as we have seen with our presidents like we (laughs) we don't want them to be just a normal person who'd be okay if they were what do you mean our president's canadian uh dual citizen (laughs) well but there's also that common phrase like who would you rather drink a beer with as the oh, guy yeah. race yeah like, I, oh, it, <laughs> who would you I, rather get a beer with which seems to be important to the american people somehow yeah. well, I, it's, that's the power <laughs> of this play right uh alex what you're talking about is is that this is where like the idea of the wastrel hero who goes on to like overcome their wasteful like that this is where it's canonized right <laughs> um in, in, in a in a sense because I, I do think it's like really interesting that part of me is like, oh yeah, no, I would totally rather root for the bar hanging out dude. And yet talking from like my own personal like experience, getting to go to private schools and getting to go to like all these like fancy, I just like look at him and I'm like, you fucking like, God damn it. Like you have everything. And yet you're talking about, not only is it implied that you've robbed citizens but you're planning on robbing your friends like it's 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 not just that he's drinking it's the thieving that i think that i have more of a problem with in like terms of like where he is morally at the start of the play but i do like the idea of him as like a border patrol agent like hotspurs as ice and kind of like everybody in northern england as kind of like ice agents is like a really interesting take on all of that I just want to point out that that Hotspur mentions honor being from the moon, whereas Hal's talking about the sun. I just, I mean, obviously they're they're mirroring each other, but it's just it's so in every single image. 
How often? Swear yeah. not by the moon, the ever-changing moon. <laughs> right, but the sun, but then they're people of the moon. How is the, right? The staff has the whole thing about how we move, how the moon moves. So it's the, like the dichotomies just get like, they get even but more when, Shakespearean. So when Hal talks about um, kind of revealing his true value and his true honor, he talks about the sun being released to reveal. Yeah. And yeah. and when Hotspur talks about honor, it's just the pale facsimile of the sun. It's just the moon. Yeah. yeah. It's, also, it's also so interesting to me that that Hotspur explicitly brings up the Prince of Wales, and he says he knows that his dad doesn't love him, and it's like, well, this is not a well kept secret, and these. Yeah. <laughs> And it makes me think again about anger and fathers and sons and like love and that these boys have both been raised with this, this um, like feud between the two of them, that they've both been mm. raised with this, or at least Hotspur knows that, you know, Hal isn't talking about it, but Hotspur's like well aware that that's my rival and he sucks. Um, <laughs> but that's- Oh, we'll talk about it in a bit. He'll, he'll yeah. bring it up. And actually, uh, Hotspur is one of the only people who witnesses Henry's moment where he talks about Hal in Richard II. And he basically says, has anyone seen my son? I haven't seen him in three months. And Hotspur says, yeah, I, I saw him. And he's like, what did he say? He's like, uh, well, I, I told him about the tournament. And the king's like, yeah, and and... <laughs> And Hotspur's like, yeah, he said he was going to go to the brothel and he was going to take a glove from the whoriest whore. And then with the whoriest whore's glove, he would um, beat the lustiest champion. And King Henry's like, oh, Jesus. It's <laughs> like, <this is> <laughs> amazing. It's an amazing moment. And like the only person that's sort of written in to be there is Hotspur. So Hotspur is like witnessing that um in the in the previous play um but yeah so let's get to our our Worcester rebellion moment because this is so I mean again this is brilliant I think on Worcester's part he's bringing all the people that have grievances against England together then once more to your Scottish prisoners deliver them up without their ransom straight and make the Douglas's son your only mean for powers in Scotland which for diverse reasons, which I shall send you written, be assured will easily be granted. You, my lord, your son in Scotland being thus employed, shall secretly into the bosom creep of that same noble prelate well-beloved, the Archbishop. Of York is not true, who bears hard his brother's death at Bristol, the Lord's Scroop. I speak not this in estimation as what I think might be, but what I know is ruminated, plotted, and set down, and only stays but to behold the face of that occasion that shall bring it on. I smell it upon my life. It will do well. Before the game is afoot, thou still let slip. Why, it cannot choose but be a noble plot. And then... The power of Scotland and of York to join to join with Mortimer, <laughs> and so they shall. In faith, it is exceedingly well aimed, and tis no little reason bids us speed to save our heads by raising of a head, for bear ourselves as even as we can. The king will always think him in our debt, and think we think ourselves unsatisfied till he hath found a time to pay us home. And see already how he doth begin to make us strangers in his looks of love. He does. He does. 
will be revenged on him. Cousin, farewell. No further go in this than I by letter shall direct your course. When time is ripe, which will be suddenly, I'll steal to Glendower and Lord Mortimer, where you and Douglas and our powers at once, as I will fashion it, shall happily meet to bear our fortunes in our own strong arms, which now we hold at much uncertainty. Farewell, good brother. We shall thrive, I trust. Uncle, adieu. Ah, let the hours be short till fields and blows and groans applaud our sport. Marvelous. So we have now been introduced to the three worlds of this play in three scenes. We've got the world of the king and politics. We have the world of the tavern and we have the world of the battlefield. And I think all sort of incarnate by, by three different characters. We've got, you know, Falstaff and the tavern, King Henry and the court and the politicians and Hotspur and the battlefield. And the way my, my, my first Shakespeare director and mentor always had this for me was that each one of those worlds is a, the side of a triangle and Prince Hal is in the middle as a circle and he sort of touches all three worlds. And that's to me a, a, a nice way to, um, to sort of visualize the play. And in fact, when I was directing, I found that a very, very useful image of organization when it came to um, uh, just visualizing how to stage and how to put the world together. There were a lot of, a lot of triangles. Thank you all so very much.